0: Hi, I'm Sheryl and front. Hello, this is Christabel.
1: Hello, this is Michael Horse.
0: Do you enjoy listening to Twin Peaks Unwrapped, the podcast? Have you picked up our book yet? Twin Peaks Unwrapped, the book. That has over 100 cast and crew who have contributed to this book. And it's, I think people really love it. I mean, we also have community commentary where a lot of the community have participated in this. It's just a great book. We recommend you pick it up at BlueRoseMag.com.
2: Thank you for your interest and for your enthusiasm. And, and keeping Twin Peaks alive.
0: Welcome to Twin Peaks Unwrapped. I'm your host, Ben Durant, and beside me is... Brian Gazaska. So, Brian, there was this show back in the 60s called The Prisoner, and
3: this month is the 50th anniversary of the show. Oh, wow. I got to watch it still. And uh, if you haven't watched it, there's going to be some spoilers. Today, we're going to be talking about Beck and Easton from the Time for Cakes and Ale
0: podcast. And they also have a podcast on The Prisoner and on Twin Peaks. And we're also going to be talking to Chris Rodley. He's the guy who did Lynch on Lynch book. Great book. I use it almost every week, it seems. Mm-hmm. And I'm so excited to be having this. So this is really focused on the prisoner. And then we might have, we'll have we have Chris Rodley on again to talk a little more about Lynch.
2: What's the name of this place?
4: You're new here, yeah. aren't you? Where? Do you want breakfast? Where is this? The village. Yes. I'll see if coffee's ready.
1: Where's the police station?
4: There isn't one. Can I use your phone? Oh, we haven't got one. Where so can I make a call? Well, there's a phone box around the
0: corner. All right, we're on the show with Eason and Bex from Time for Cakes and Ale podcast. Hello. Hi. Hello, hi. First, it's really cool to talk with another Twin Peaks podcast, which you guys are great. Tell me, how did you guys get started in podcasts? Because you have three podcasts.
4: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, it was a couple of years ago we started thinking about Doing a a podcast, just talking about stuff that we love, really. So like film, TV, comics, books, gaming, everything. And that's where the Time for Cakes Now podcast initially came from. And we were going for about a year, just you know talking about stuff that we love and putting our episodes when we had stuff that we wanted to talk about. Uh, And then Twin Peaks came back, (laughs) and we knew that we wanted to talk about that endlessly. So we began the time for cherry pie and coffee stream to cover all the Twin Peaks stuff and then last September um, the 50th anniversary of The Prisoner first airing in the UK came around and it was perfect timing really because Twin Peaks Return was just coming to an end and we were thinking about what to do next with this spare time we'd suddenly have now we weren't talking about Twin Peaks every week so we thought why not start talking about The Prisoner and we began last September with a, a series of episodes that uh, were interviews with people who were connected with the show in some way, people who'd written about it or people who loved it. And then this year we decided, well, why not just do every episode of The Prisoner in depth, talking about it as much as we want. So that's what we're doing at the moment. We're putting out fortnightly episodes, talking about each of the 17 original episodes of The Prisoner. And it's perfect timing, really, because now, as you say, the 50th anniversary of the first US broadcast has come around. Mm. Brian here, like Twin Peaks, he's
0: now he has never seen The Prisoner Never before. seen The Prisoner, <laughs> no. <laughs> How can you guys explain
5: The Prisoner to him? The Prisoner is a show about a character who we know as uh, Number Six, who has a job as some high-ranking government-associated official Uh, in London and he resigns from this job and he prepares to go away on a holiday somewhere. But as the uh, opening episode, Arrival, reveals, and indeed uh, it's repeated in the opening titles of every episode, uh, whilst he's packing his briefcase and ready to go, a sort of black hearse pulls up outside his house. Um, A guy with a top hat comes out, comes to his door, pumps it full of gas that knocks him out. And number six, he collapses. And when he wakes up, he is initially in his room, in his uh, house in London. But when he goes to the window, he looks outside and he realizes that although the room he's in is uh, the same as his house back home, he's actually looking out in a place known only as The Village, which is completely alien to him. It's like a a quaint, almost holiday resort-like place, with complete strangers running the place. He has no idea how he got there, why he's there, but he knows it's a place where people are kept prisoner for various reasons, often related to what they may have done in their former life. And whilst he's there, the village overlords who are often led by a character who uh, rotates in most of the episodes, who is called Number Two, uh, is there to try and break him and find out exactly why he's resigned. And at the same time, Number Six tries to learn more about the village and essentially try and find ways to break out himself and return back home. That kind of describes it. Yeah, That's yeah, probably the most yeah. concise I've ever been. I I'm know, sorry it went on I for thought, a while. I thought, I
0: thought, <laughs> yeah. Description of the show. I, think that I was liked really it. Sad. I will not make any deals with you. I've resigned.
5: I will not be pushed filed stamped indexed briefed debriefed or
3: numbered my life is my own is it
0: 50 years ago you know he was talking about you can't be a prisoner to society and yet mm. it's so crazy that it's still true today and I I think about Facebook and you know you get you're always giving away your information and stuff and mm-hmm. Patrick McGowan who was the star and he directed some of them and he wrote it and he he was so involved with it and I think he was really trying to say that you know you you have to have freedom what do you want? information
1: whose side are you on? that would be telling we want information 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 you won't get it by book or by crook we will who are you?
2: The new number two. Who is number one? You
1: are number six. I am not a number. I am a free man.
4: <laughs> but in the very first episode in Arrival, he has this wonderful early exchange with the number two who is there at the time where number two is running through everything they know about his life, where he was born, where he grew up. They've got photographs of him in his house. They know everything about him. And at one point he exclaims that the one thing they don't know is the precise time of his birth. Mm. So he fills it in for them because they have all this mountain of biographical information. And he he tries to make the point that you you might know all this stuff about me, but you will not know what is inside my head. I'm not going to give you that information. I'm not going to tell you why I resigned. It's the one piece of information that they clearly think that if they can break him and make him reveal that one piece of information, then they'll have him and everything else will follow. And he knows that he has to keep that to himself if he's ever going to survive in this place. Beautiful
5: day. They didn't settle for ages. Now they wouldn't leave for the
1: world. You mean you brought them around to your way of thinking? They had a choice.
2: Wait. Wait! Be still! Stop! Ah. 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 Turn back!
0: Ah. Ah. Can you talk about, is it Rover with the white balloon that chases people? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, the prisoner is filled
5: with uh, some really uh iconic uh features i mean uh, the village itself is very well known uh the costume so uh number six is blazer which is like a a dark brown uh almost black blazer with white piping mm-hmm. um rover is one of the you know the really classic iconic things about it it's a large well it was actually a large weather balloon Uh, in The Prisoner, it seems to represent some kind of sort of security system that Mm -hmm. exists. So so everywhere number six goes, he's being watched by the number two and also um, usually the supervisor as well. And they're watching things on giant screens all the time. Mm -hmm. They're seeing exactly where he's going. And whenever he gets too far, often he tries and makes a break for it uh, by sea, they will issue an orange alert. And from the bottom of the sea, this white balloon thing will just kind of bubble up form and pop up on the surface of the water and it will chase him around. and it does it on land as well. It'll sometimes appear out of nowhere around a corner in the village and just sort of bounce around following him around. It's so it's a weird thing because it is just a weather balloon. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's one of the most terrifying things. It's just like this amorphous mass that is ever present and sort of has a ceaseless energy just to keep going. And it has this weird cult of people who follow him as well because mm. in a couple of scenes you see really strange things like just for one shot. Is it it's in free-for-all. In free-for-all, yeah. There's a scene for no reason where number six goes into a cave where he finds Rover and it's just uh, surrounded by, I think, four guys in bizarre sunglasses Mm. sitting on deck chairs watching it. Um, (laughs) It's never mentioned again and it's extremely (laughs) surreal. I mean, everyone was probably on drugs at the time, but, but it's just the
2: craziest thing.
0: And all these things keep popping up. It just it's the whole thing is very trippy. Yeah. yeah. It captures people and like you see the balloon like covering their face and stuff and to me it, it can be creepy sometimes. It looks like you know, I don't know what's gonna kill people or what it's doing. Huh.
4: But. The unstoppable and unknowable nature of it in that you're never really sure, is it mechanical, is it biological, is it both? How is it killing people? Mm, And and the fact that no one can seem to stop it to the point where you you see quite a a few scenes all the way through the show where Rover is bouncing around the village and the people just freeze and stand completely stuck still so that it will go past them and not touch them. It's, It's kind of menacing and completely unknowable, and I think that's why it's become this iconic element of the show that really all you need to do to represent the show is have a guy in a blazer running away from a white (laughs) sphere and that's people know what that is that's the show
0: (laughs) i love it why do you think after 50 years that it's still it's so very popular it's still kind of like cult tv well i think fundamentally it was just way ahead of its time
5: you know as a tv show i think it really played with the structure of how you did television at the time so it's part of this stable of itc shows which were um, all produced by a guy called uh, lou grade they were all uh, british shows that were designed to have a sort of an international audience as well mm. they were often kind of action orientated lots of spy things so you had things like persuaders the, the avengers, avengers yeah, yeah uh, the champions all these different things the prisoner was unique because it was something that patrick mcguyen made after uh, he'd been doing a show called danger man for a long time i think he realized that was Almost too stilted a show for him to still be doing after whatever 50 odd episodes. Mm. And he wanted to do something unique. And this was a show where it allowed him to explore themes that he was interested in in a format where it was a limited series. So a lot of these shows were designed to run for a very long time. He said, No, I'm going to have a limited number of episodes. Each episode is going to be about themes such as uh, free will and surveillance and the idea of, you know, personal prisons and uh, Big Brother, all these things which sort of I think resonate well as much if not more now than they did back then and also you know just in terms of how he was doing this show i mean all 17 episodes wonderful little sort of mini movies to watch on their own all very unique and yet everything that's in that show i think um from its iconography to how um it's influenced tv it's seen in sort of the fabric of how tv has been made for the last 50 years i think certainly it's inspired loads of other cult tv shows sort of Um, Happened. I'm sure it's certainly something that was watched by a lot of creators of a lot of really great shows at the moment. Just people who kind of thought, you know, let's try and be original with the show. And I think the originality of the premise and the desire to make it has translated to viewers who are like, I want to see something new. And because it's a very timeless show, although it's a very 60s thing as well, Mm. you can watch it today and it just seems as fresh as it ever was. It's not really that dated, even though Mm. it is set in the 60s. Yeah. You know, everything kind of makes it. Very alien. It just seems like this guy has dropped into this world, and it's almost without any context. He is there. He doesn't know, and we don't really know. And it, and I suppose by the end of the series, it's still you know. Although there are some things in the last episode which really do place it in a kind of trippy, psychedelic '60s sort of Beatles-esque um, era, you know, most of it just remains completely timeless. And I think you can come to it at any age and you can come to it at any time in the last 50 years and it still remains a really fascinating show to watch, but also an entertaining one as well.
4: I think it's also helped by the fact that for a British show made at that time, it cost a heck of a lot and the production values were really, really high. British TV at that point was still largely in black and white but it was all shot in color on film because they wanted to sell it internationally they knew they wanted to sell it to the states so obviously now we have these glorious kind of restored blu-ray color versions of it that look spectacular probably looks better now than it ever did in the past a lot of the directors that they had making episodes were more used to being film directors so it has an incredible filmic quality to it sometimes there's something about it that makes it stand out even amongst all of those other shows that were being made at that time. I mean, it's one of those shows where you look back and you think, how on earth did they ever actually get away with making this? Because (laughs) it cost way too much, and it it must have seemed completely bonkers at the time. You know, you you talk to some of the surviving cast members now, and they say that, you know, a lot of people didn't really understand what it was about when they came on and did their guest episode. They just kind of ran with it. But Patrick McGowan knew what it was about and it was it was so much with him being the driving force of it and bringing his vision to the show um but i think made it what it is and it's still so fantastic to watch
0: yeah Uh, david lynch when he's doing the new twin peaks he wanted to do 18 parts and patrick Mm -hmm. mcguin wanted to do seven episodes he felt like okay the story is about we have enough to tell seven stories and mm-hmm. the studios or they were kind of like okay you, we really need to do more than that if we're going to sell this and I think that's where they ended up with 17 but it's kind of funny that like the, the two artists how one wanted more to t- tell the story and one wanted less <laughs> and Bex yeah yeah uh, Bex, you talked about uh, the Blu-ray, <laughs> and I felt like you're rubbing it in, because <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> the UK got a new 50th anniversary Blu-ray. Oh. They, they, they included, in my mind, uh, Chris Rodley's uh, documentary, and I was like, I wanted it. I actually been waiting to rewatch The Prisoner for like two years, because like, okay, I'll wait for the 50th anniversary. They have to put out a new Blu-ray for this, because it's the 50th anniversary, and it never showed up. So I'm jealous of you guys that you got a Aww. new Blu-ray.
4: <laughs> if enough people want it in the US, yes. hopefully something will yeah. come out, yeah. especially with the 50th anniversary and hopefully some renewed interest in it. And Ethan, <laughs> you
0: mentioned about creators you know, being influenced by The Prisoner. Mark Frost, co-creator of Twin Peaks, he loved The Prisoner when he was younger. And I'm sure he was influenced by The Prisoner in some way when it came to Twin Peaks. I
5: remember, uh, I think it was around the time of the UK anniversary when you know, there were lots of tweets going around talking about the fact it was, you know, the 50th anniversary of The Prisoner. And I'm sure Mark Frost himself actually tweeted something where he referred to The Prisoner as the greatest show of all time. Yeah. Now, wow. uh, you know, I can just imagine, you know, Mark Frost, probably people like uh, Damon Lindelof, I can imagine the people who made things like The Wire, The Sopranos, or like Vince Gilligan, who did Breaking Bad. I think all these people have all mentioned it at some point as a show that was influential. And you can just see that there's. it's the people who have kind of come in this, I don't know what it's called, this kind of golden era of, of television where people are making these limited event series or sort of, shorter runs of really good quality television that's just designed to really be challenging to you know to watch and engage the viewer that moves away from the you know from the network format that was running sort of throughout the 80s and 90s all those people i think are now having this moment where they're able to produce really good original shows and i think you know a huge debt know, has to be paid to people like Magowan who allowed these things to get made, at least on the UK side, I think lots of people were doing it, you know, in other parts of the world as well, including the US. But there are a few creators, I think, who are really doing original things that, you know, and you can just imagine, you know, a young Mark Frost watching this, yeah. you know, and, and thinking, Oh, wow, you know, this is a really cool show, then, yeah, you know, this, this probably gets your creative juices flowing in the same way that 25 years ago, people were probably watching Twin Peaks, and thinking, what is this thing and it kind of gets you really creative it gets you excited about things again and it's something you engage with
0: oh yeah Yeah. I definitely agree I listen to all your podcasts and I think you guys really compliment each other so well and and just having you on today is like you guys really know your stuff like you really (laughs) (laughs) you guys are always on top of it time for cherry pie and coffee is your Twin Peaks podcast and you're continuing to do that right you're kind of going back and forth between the the different podcasts
5: Yeah. So this weekend, we were at the um, Freud Lynch conference in London. And it was actually on the train on the way back. We're inspired by all the conversations that were happening. Mm. Uh, We've kind of decided on how we wanted to sort of bring our Twin Peaks stream back. So we've been kind of doing it on and off since our our five-hour episode about the final episode, 17 wow, and 18, in wow. September. We never really recovered from that ourselves. <laughs> I, I don't know if anyone even listened to it. But, wow. but we kind of thought, you know, how is it we can do something that is something that we want to put out, that we think, you know, listeners would want to hear about. And this will be starting probably in the next few weeks, actually. Yeah. But we thought it'd be really fun. Again, it's probably a silly idea, I don't know. But we thought with all the titles of the episodes in uh, The Return. As I recall, these titles were not necessarily assigned by uh, Lynch and Frost. They were ones that Showtime came up with, I think just to, just to give them a name, I think otherwise just referred to as, as parts. Hmm. Um, but the titles themselves, we thought were really interesting jumping off points to discuss uh, sort of tangential aspects of The Return and Twin Peaks itself. So we kind of thought, well, you know, the first one I think is called "My log has a message for you, yeah, yeah, and it was really odd, but we thought it'd be really fun to just to talk about you know things that you know to do with twin Peaks that are related to uh, the telegraph poles and the trees and things like that, and just see how that kind of ties into things. We wanted to do one um I think the case files one we've got scheduled is going to be about actually Mark Frost's contribution to everything because we like the idea that they're kind of these ancillary documents that come yeah. along with the tv show like a we want to do, yeah so <laughs> yeah. so all these all these titles are kind of jumping off points for us to talk about sort of new topics that we think will just be not kind of recap and review kind of things but like almost sort of short mini essays that we can just kind of talk about and see if anyone else is interested in them too
0: i like that i think that's great
5: that's no, great idea. Cool. we finally cracked what each of the 18 episodes is going to be about uh, some of the tangents are, are way off, um, <laughs> but I think they'll probably start in about two weeks or so. Great! Yeah, we're, yeah. we're
4: kind of we're working on the material for the first one at the moment. Um, nice. And we've we've got them all plotted out. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you yeah it you was know, just last weekend that the, the Freud Lynch uh, conference. How was that?
4: It was really good. Um, it was two days of sort of talks uh, about. Well, everything to do with David Lynch's whole career. So it leaned more towards his films than Twin Peaks, but there was quite a lot of um, Twin Peaks' return in there. And it all ended with a big panel discussion uh, just about the return. And there were some really great talks in there. So uh, Chris Broadley gave a talk. There was uh, one, uh, Catherine Spooner gave a talk about costume and, and Lynch's use of costumes mm. um, and uh it, throughout his films and in uh, and in Twin Peaks, there was one about the uh, they referred to as the, um, was it the split identity trilogy, the, the blurred, guess, the blurred so. identity yeah. trilogy oh, yeah. of uh, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, and Inland Empire together, wow. and examining how they all look at, at um, kind of fractures in identity. There was one about the art influences on Lynch, and that there was some great uh, kind of pictures put up showing some of the shots from the return next to some paintings by some artists that Lynch has talked about as being influential on him, where you can see him almost recreating certain paintings and images within the return, which was absolutely incredible to see. Cool.
3: Oh yeah, we've noticed awesome. too, yeah. On Twitter, people are posting about the artwork and stuff that he, mm. he kind of mimicked in season three. He brought to life, especially the, um, the picture of the dog with the antlers, it looks like he's on fire. And they come, oh, come to yeah. find out there was actually a real picture he drew a couple of years back. Oh. Yeah, it's kind of really interesting that I think
5: through the return, there were these, these two really striking aspects of, uh, of some of the visuals, at least, which is, uh, well, firstly, there's the use of many bits of imagery that he's used in all the different artworks he's done in all different media throughout his career that keeps mm. popping up. And also clearly he's decided to pay a little bit of an homage to some of the other artists who have influenced him as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you get a lot of Hopper imagery throughout the whole thing. It's really interesting just as a, you know, as a piece to watch. It's strange because you, you know, you can experience the return as something that you can watch, you can listen to it, you can just experience it. There are all these different ways of, of feeling the show, yeah. I think. But certainly, just by watching it, it's a beautiful thing to watch. It
2: is um, truly.
5: I mean, everything is so so wonderfully composed. I think it really does come from somebody who is not solely a um, you know a filmmaker, but actually sort of a visual artist. You know, they know how to how to put something together and compose you know the image with the sound so beautifully that it evokes. It evokes feelings in you that are just, it's just stuff you just don't get from other TV. And I think it's in that respect, it also supersedes, I think, elements of seasons one and two um, and Fire Walk With Me and how, in how all-encompassing an emotional experience it is.
0: Going back to The Prisoner, you're on like episode eight now, so you're almost
4: halfway through The Prisoner. Yeah. It, it was kind of a shock when we actually realized that we were we were halfway through, because um, it feels like we've been doing it for a long time now.
5: <laughs> well, I think we put out about 20, 20 hours or something, so it does feel like a long time. Aww.
4: Yeah, we, we just recorded part of our next episode, which is going to be episode nine Um, so we are pretty much halfway there and we we have already got some of the interviews that are going to be coming up later we have already recorded because we needed to get people when they were available but it's it's actually been really fun for us to sit down and watch all the episodes of The Prisoner through again, sometimes sort of two or three times, mm. and think about them in these terms and just try to vocalize what it is that, that we're we're feeling about them. It's a a very different experience to just watching the show when you suddenly think, hang on, I've gotta talk about this. I've got to <laughs> I've got to somehow put into words what it is that I'm feeling. Uh, but it's it's really
0: good fun so I'm still debating should we ruin this for Brian is Brian ever going to are you ever going to watch (laughs) (laughs) it
3: you can ruin it for me if you like if you really want to tell me the ending I don't
0: know I I mean because then we, we could have a couple minutes discussion on it but at the same time if you want, to, if you think you'll go out and see it at some point, I'll, I'll let you.
3: I, I am, I am interested. I can, well, I can leave the room, and the three of you can talk about the ending. <laughs> All right, why don't we do that? I can grab a couple coffee, get and a like, cup of coffee. Yeah, <laughs> I do, You guys have piqued my interest. All right. Um, I'll, before I let you guys talk about the ending, the way you describe it in my head, the only thing I can think of. It's like mushing uh, Lost and Doctor Who together. And (laughs) the part of Lost (laughs) I'm thinking of is Dharma. Yeah. Is when that that one season starts and you're with Ben and you're with the group and they're having a book club. And all of a sudden the plane explodes above their book club. And... Mm. And you see a different perspective. That's the part remind. What You're saying that he just appears in this new place. Right. And I kind of think of the Dharma Initiative.
4: Yeah.
0: And almost. we didn't say, did we, though, the village is an island, isn't it?
4: Well... Is is it? Is this part of where we're going to be talking about the last episode? All right, maybe episode? we that's, that's a
3: great point. Never mind. We'll Don't like, ruin that for me.
0: I, I would say that when I first watched it, I thought that, that the village was an island. Especially, I mean, you can say in the first episode that, you know, he's trying to escape. And I would be led to believe that yeah, he's sure. on an island and that there is nowhere to go.
3: So my last connection <laughs> is go. pretty close. <laughs> yeah. And then when you mentioned <laughs> yeah. the, the white blot, the white sphere, I think of something out of Doctor Who... With a weird Ooh. alien and a practical effect and uh, something like that. A little like bit. That. I mean,
0: it probably doesn't go as crazy as Doctor Who, but I mean, yeah. it's got elements, maybe. The yeah.
3: sphere planet of aliens. <laughs> All right, I'll let you guys talk about the end. I'll, I'll get a cup of coffee. I'll be, okay. Just open the door of crap, crack when you're ready. All right.
0: All right. He's gone. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> let's, let's talk about Brian. Okay. <laughs> so the big thing in the in in the prisoner is who is number one, and. Yeah. I mean, we're led to believe by the end it, it seems like number six is number one. Is that how you take it to be? There's something very strange
5: about about that last episode. I mean, it was it was very hastily put together, and I think it 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 throws up many different possibilities. It could be interpreted in many different ways. What we do see is is the reveal that uh, a character who is um, thought to be number one is is found by number six. Uh, He's found wearing a mask, which when removed reveals uh, the mask of like a gorilla. And when that mask comes off, it is Patrick McGowan underneath. And they have this weird, strange, very, very uh, Dale Cooper, Doppel Cooper kind of face off in the whole thing. And it is revealed that number one is number six. Now, whether that's like a a literal representation of what's happening or whether it's or whether it relates to uh, McGowan's idea that everyone is kind of a, you know, in one's own prison, in some way, right. that there are many ways of interpreting it. I think, I, I think the most literal one is, you know, is that that number one is indeed number six. But there are elements of it that make you wonder whether, you know, even that is an allegory for what for what Magoon was trying to say about the nature of identity. The fact that the village itself is filled with strange experiments that seem to generate uh, doubles of people and mm. uh, and ways to obscure identity it's it's unclear exactly what's going on i mean indeed there are elements that suggest that six is aware of what the village might actually be or certainly the people he works for or worked wow. for formerly back in london were aware of what the village was wow. i think it can be read that way well I, th- I think everyone's going to have very subtly different interpretations of what of what those uh, final few minutes mean but i think certainly yeah it does it does appear that uh, number one's identity which you know which six has been looking for the whole time is actually himself
0: yeah he does escape at the end but i'm trying to remember now did he go in, was he was he in a car he was in a truck or something but he i don't know, think he even had to go by boat or plane he just seemed to ride off
4: <laughs> which... yeah that, that's what's so bizarre about that last episode is that previously you've seen escape attempts happen by sea and it has seemed that the village is is on an island of some kind. And yet, in that final episode, they seem to drive through a tunnel and emerge, and they're just not that far from from London, yeah. and then they just drive to London. You think, well, how, how does this, any of this work, the geography of where we thought the village was? And, you yeah, know, they've got that uh, truck with the kind of open side with the bars, which was introduced in the in the penultimate episode, mm. and they just drive through London, and you just have <laughs> bizarre music, and, yeah. and then just no no explanation at the end. It just right. ends, and it's as endings go. I think it's up there with part eighteen of the return. Yeah, and, and in some ways, just saying to the viewer, like right, well, that's up to you then. What do you think happens? Because <laughs> right. we're not really going to explain it to you. You know, it, it was pretty audacious to do it back then, and I think it's still. A risky thing to do now in terms of people wanting some kind of narrative conclusion and then not getting it. Oh, this
0: is like the curtain call. Like the show is over and they're kind of like taking Mm. their final bow and it's like they're, they're, that's the way they're going to end it. But then he he gets to his house and the the door opens by itself and it makes you think, yeah, yeah. it makes you think of the door in in the village and it's like, wait a minute, is he still a prisoner? Is he still in the village? Yeah, so
5: earlier on, I think it's in uh, Many Happy Returns, he manages to make it out of the village. By means which are unclear because it's certainly not the same route he takes in Fallout. Um, But what happens there is that he returns to his old house, number one Buckingham Place, and uh, the door does open normally. It's opened by a maid and there's a new occupant in the house who is revealed to be an important character in the in the prisoner mythology and yet yeah you're right in the last episode he goes back home and it just automatically opens it does make you wonder you right. know exactly what it's all kind of meant to mean i think even those last few minutes you know is this actually all something which is not necessarily imagined but like a, you know a potential way that this this whole thing plays out because it all ends in this strange fever dream as yeah. you know at the end of once upon a time there's such strange things going on there's the rocket there's all the people in the in the strange masks who are all singing dem bones over and over <laughs> again there's a the guy who's the judge who was formerly a character in uh the girl who was death was it
2: yeah, um, yeah.
5: you've got the kid who was in uh living in, living in harmony. harmony returning here and it's strange because obviously there was there was talk about how uh, Magun wanted to continue the series in some capacity and his original idea was to have a spin-off show that would take place with the kid oh, and wow. the butler having wow. adventures I don't know what form that would have been, but that would have been an incredible show. It had nothing to do with number six. That was the proposed follow-up that never actually happened.
0: Isn't that something? Wow. (laughs) That's crazy. I didn't realize they ever talked about a spinoff. I hadn't heard that before.
5: I think an aspect of it must have been, so so with the uh, final episode being so controversial, so famously uh, the switchboards... In the uk were jammed at the networks that were showing the episode because everyone just went crazy and wanted to know what was going on. <laughs> McGowan had to take his family and leave the country there was all these i think were death threats being made there were he was being hounded all the time you know people wanting to know what the hell was going on I think they weren't satisfied by it but it's strange because I think if that ending had played out now people would be able to accept it in light of
0: television yeah. taking place. Yeah. It's amazing um, a TV show would have no. had that, I mean people get upset but to get that upset that you feel like you have to leave the country I mean
4: <laughs> I know it's, it's, and it's incredibly sad but he, he, he almost felt like it was sort of a, a, an albatross around his yeah. neck in some ways and uh, you know he, he'd been doing films in America and uh, you know the, the decision like right well I'm just going to go and do more films in America and do TV in America and uh, get away from the people who keep stopping me on the street and ask me what on earth that last episode of television was all about because yeah. it, it was such a big thing in Britain at the time you know it was a hugely successful show pretty much the most famous actor on British TV when they made The Prisoner wow. because Danger Man had been a hugely successful show um millions of people were watching it and then the, the Prisoner had become almost one of the first water cooler TV shows before that was even a thing you know people talked about it in the playground and at work it was a thing that everyone discussed and so to be given such a a a bizarre conclusion um, yeah I, I think the world wasn't ready for it you know at the end of back to the future when <laughs> when he says you're not ready for this but your kids are gonna love it
0: so true Chris Rodley's documentary in my mind he, you know he interviews Patrick McGowan and there is a point where he, Patrick says that uh, like you know the prisoner was a lot of it was in his mind and stuff, which Mm. I thought, and I thought like, wow, like he's really saying in some ways he could be saying kind of like Twin Peaks is, is it all a dream or is it like, is a lot of this things that he's going through is, is mental and not really happening.
5: Uh, What's really interesting about it. And I think it's a strong parallel to how Lynch sometimes talks about Twin Peaks is that I think there's an element of it, which is very much a part of the creator and the prisoner. It, it just could not have been made by anyone else except for Magoon in the same way that it, it took Lynch and Frost to make Twin Peaks. Mm. There are so many elements of The Prisoner which are very personal to him and I think he just didn't want to talk about it afterwards. He felt that everything that needed to be known about The Prisoner was in those episodes. He was, yeah. you know, That's the only thing he ever really said about it and, and different people are going to get different things out of it and to talk about it or explain it would actually undermine it because it would then apply a a label or a meaning to it. Whereas I think he liked, he liked the fact that he clearly had an idea of what it was about. Everyone gets something different from it. And I think he liked the fact that it was open to interpretation. He didn't didn't want something where it was wrapped up with a neat little bow at the end of 17 episodes. It was important to him. He felt it was important to make. I think it drained him completely. I mean, certainly when we've spoken to people who were involved in the show on the podcast, they've spoken about how he was a ferocious character on the set. I think he wanted full control of this thing and I think it yeah. was I mean more than being his baby it was just like this was this was something in him that he wanted to get out I think and when it was out he wanted to be done with it I think it was almost quite cathartic of him to to put this show out and I think he must have been secretly quite happy that it had <laughs> the longevity that it did but I think he didn't want all the trouble that came with the fans who were terrorizing him trying to work out, you know, what did this mean? What did that mean? What are you guys talking
3: about? Twin Peaks (laughs) or The Prisoner? It could have been either. It could have been. It really sound like you are talking about Lynch. No, we're talking about the Prisoner. I know, but exactly—that's exactly what I, I think about. Like everything you said, I was like, "Oh, David Lynch." Yeah, I know definitely. that's. And
0: so I discovered the Prisoner in college. You know, I mean, so this is the the, the mid uh, '90s or getting to later '90s. i heard if you like Twin Peaks, you'd like the Prisoner, and so that's mm-hmm, how mm-hmm. I discovered it. it. Is like, oh, I gotta find that. I gotta get my VHS tapes of the Prisoner. Here. <laughs> 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 oh, you know, I wanted to mention too is that you know. In, in the United States, uh, before The Prisoner, there was another show, Danger Man. But in the U.S. it was called Secret Agent Man. And oh, Secret it. Agent Man. Yeah, yeah. Secret a-
3: Agent Man. Yeah, I love that theme song. <laughs> There's a man who leads a life of danger. Everyone
0: he meets, he stays a
2: stranger.
0: Tomorrow. Secret Asian man Secret Asian man they you a number And away your name
4: there's, there's an interesting connection here because, because you never know what number six's name is in The Prisoner. And although yeah. it's sometimes alluded to that he might have been a spy, you never really know what his job was, only that it's something connected to um the british government that meant that he knew secrets basically and some people have read it as he is still his character from danger man this this spy named john drake yeah but john drake has now been transplanted into the village but they never used that name but they almost occasionally make little knowing jokes about it mm. um, there's a at one point there's a photograph of number six that's used and it's the publicity still of him as John Drake from Danger Man.
2: That's wow. um, it's almost like
4: they're just teasing the audience with this, yes. but it's, it's not actually him in the sense that they ever confirmed this, but right. it's, it's just one way of reading it. Yeah,
5: yeah and Mark Steen, who was the co-creator, but who departed after the first sort of 12 or 13 episodes, as so he was a co-creator with Maguire, and I think Mark Stein was more keen on the idea of number six being John Drake whereas uh, Magoo and just like the ambiguity of it. So it can be read either way. Um you know personally I you know I I like to think of number 6 as somebody different just because I think it adds even more to the yeah. uh, to the mystique about the whole thing. You know there's a a wonderful sort of yeah link to to Danger Man or Secret Agent Man or I don't know, I don't know, I think you know I think if they re-release the Blu-ray of, uh, of of Danger Man but put You singing the theme tune on it there you know you it could be, it could be huge. <laughs>
3: I love that theme song. I, mean, I that, You know, I never saw the show, but when I was younger, I heard that song on the Classic Rock Channel. Yes. I recorded oh, wow. it, and I drove my parents up the wall with that song. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. Oh. And I didn't know it was a show. I think my parents told me it was a show. Right, and, right. and I was just kind of like, I just love the song. That's an awesome song.
0: I also learned, I mean, only reason, it was probably uh, Chris's documentary that uh, Patrick McGowan could have been James Bond. Yeah, he turned, he turned
5: yeah. it down. So, um, oh wow, that would have been a remarkable turn of events. But it would have it would have probably changed the direction of James Bond forever. So he was going to do it. Was it after Sean Connery?
4: I think it may have even been that they well, asked it him the Sean before Conner. yeah, Sean Connery. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
5: wow,
2: and
4: and he he didn't want to do it. If you watch the the prisoner, you'll notice that unlike a lot of those kind of glossy spy shows of the time. Number six, he, he never gets into romantic entanglements with anybody. He never carries a gun. And these were all things that came from McGuin's influence that, that speak to his character, really. The, the reason that it's believed that he turned down being James Bond is because he didn't like those elements of James Bond as a character. Mm. And if if you take those elements away from James Bond, you're almost not actually left with a character because <laughs> if he's not womanizing and shooting bad guys, then what is he doing? Right. He isn't really doing anything yes. at all, you know. <laughs> That's fine. Um, but it, yeah, it's the shows that Maguire had the the biggest influence over. That they, they almost only become clear when you look at them in contrast to other shows that were around at the time. And it has quite an interesting effect on The Prisoner. Because you don't have any female characters that are just there to be a love interest, you actually get some really interesting female characters that are just there in, in other capacities. Whereas you watch a lot of those other shows that were around at that time, there are a lot of you know girlfriends and love interests around. But in The Prisoner, they had to be a bit more creative and find ultimately more interesting and satisfying things for feel my characters to be.
0: Yeah. This has been a great talk about The Prisoner for the 50th anniversary. So are you still doing Time for Cakes and Ale or is your really your attention right now on the Tally Ho podcast?
4: <laughs> so, uh yeah, we, we are still doing Time for Cakes and Ale. It's, we've just had t- so much of our time taken up on the Tally Ho um, these last couple of months because we've been getting so many episodes out and also recording bits for episodes that haven't come out yet. But we are still doing it. Um, there's going to be An episode coming out. Well, I can't promise when it's going to be because we haven't recorded it yet. But I think we're going to do an episode soon about The Good Place. Oh, awesome. because it's it's one of our favorite shows at the moment. I love it. Good, um, good. I've watched it way too many times. I can practically <laughs> recite lines within now when I watch it. <laughs>
0: you need to convince uh, Brian to check it out. I've been trying to get him to watch this show. Well, I will. I have so many shows. <laughs> Listen to the podcast. Listen right, to the podcast. It's so I, good. It's like the, one of the best
4: comedies out there right now. I know. <laughs> I have a long list. It's another example of a, of a show that... It doesn't need to have a you know a twenty-two season sitcom right. style mm. where everything goes back to the beginning. It's it's a show that that takes the fact that it can just do these twelve episode seasons and embraces it. Is there anything
0: else you want to share with us about
4: any of your podcast
0: uh, before you go?
4: Well, just that all three of them are going to continue. I mean, we've we're going to have our next tally ho uh, coming out. Um, next Wednesday, which is going to be about the episode Checkmate. It's a really great episode. And we've got uh, our guest on for that one is a guy named Rick Davey, who runs the Unmutual website, which is a huge prisoner fan site. He's incredibly knowledgeable about the series. Um, we, we, that was really fun recording that chat with him that we did um, very recently and as we said we're going to be bringing some more cherry pie and coffee back with these kind of shorter themed episodes which we're going to start recording soon and we are doing Cakes and Ale we promise, it's just been <laughs> fitting it into the schedule has been crazy but yeah we're, we're planning to do a good place and I think at some point we're going to do an Infinity War one as well Oh nice um, Yeah and, and uh, it, it's just going to be a bit calmer once we've got just these next few tally-ho episodes under our belt, I think.
5: Yeah, one thing about the tally-ho as well is, so what we do is we tend to kind of ramble about the episodes for about an hour and a half, you know, (laughs) talking about what we think about them, what we like and all these things. uh, But what we always have is, you know, is a special guest. So we've got some really interesting ones who we've got lined up for the sort of uh, back half of the season. So we've got some people who are involved in uh, uh, writing some really interesting... uh, Uh, books about the show some filmmakers who were involved in it and also some of the original cast are popping up for interviews as well so it's getting hard to track people down obviously it's a very old show but um it's remarkable how we've managed to i think also get some interviews with people who have really interesting perspectives on it as well so if you're interested in the show and i think it's a good time to come to it just because it is the 50th anniversary and You know, if you can get your hands on a copy, it really is worth watching. If you're a fan of Twin Peaks, I think I think The Prisoner is you know is a is a really interesting show that I think you might just take to as well. Um, You know, it it would be really interesting just in terms of watching along for the first time and sort of having like a review and recap kind of style analysis, but also um, the really fun bit. You know, I think are the interviews that we have with people Mm. that go along with it because I think it you know, it's it's a show whose legacy you know is kept alive by the people who are actually peripheral to it because obviously uh, patrick mcgoon is no longer with us but it's mm-hmm. remarkable how many interesting stories still survive um uh based on uh, people who knew him people who are in the show um and all those different things as well so uh yeah if anyone is thinking about taking a dive into the prisoner now's a good time and the tally ho is the place to find out about it <laughs> totally yeah, <and laughs> nice
4: i should add that we, we've we've been keeping our recaps spoiler free for subsequent episodes so if somebody's watching it for the first time you can watch you know episode four and then listen to our podcast about episode four and we're not going to be talking about loads of stuff that happens later in the series so
2: awesome. um,
4: yeah if you are watching for the first time you can effectively sort of Take the tally ho along with you while you're doing it. Awesome! That's so cool. I think
0: I'll do that. You guys had Chris Rodley on, and you guys did yeah. two shows on that, and I th- and I love both of the 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 interview and the talk with him, and that was such wow. good shows. And when well, it was each show an hour and a half long, but it was like it was really immediate. Yeah. There, was, there was a lot. There was a lot going on.
5: Yeah, it was re- it was really fun because um, you know uh, we got in touch with him, and it was I think we kind of spent sort of a good few hours chatting, and it's it's one of those things where if ever you're in a room with a fan of uh, of a similar thing, in this case, it was both Twin Peaks mm. and The Prisoner. Through obviously Chris's work uh, uh, with Lynch on Lynch, uh, his knowledge of of Lynch's filmography and you know and uh, and sort of general um, sort of art art history as well um and he knew mcguin as well i mean to be in a room with somebody who you know really has some really interesting insights into it and is also um you know a really great documentary filmmaker himself uh to be honest i think we could have spoken to him for for days <laughs> um, you know but we cut it down to three hours and they were really fun uh, those oh, yeah. were really
0: fun episodes so to put good out. i definitely recommend you check those out awesome Well, thank you. Can can you tell people how can they follow you? Uh, Where can they learn more about your podcast?
4: You can get um, the Time for Cakes and podcast. The the stream for Time for Cakes and contains all of our podcasts. So if you subscribe to Time for Cakes and on iTunes or through um, whatever podcast app you use, you'll get all of those and all the Tally Ho and all the cherry pie and coffee all in one stream.
0: That's how I do it. Um,
4: Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And you can also find them all on our website, which is Um There's download links and, and web players on there. And if you want to get in touch with us, um, you can get in touch on the website or on Twitter, we are TFCAA, because uh, Time For K-S-N-L was too big to put in as a handle. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're on Facebook as well. There's a Time For K-S-N-L page on Facebook. But most of the time, we're on Twitter. So do uh, drop us a line if, if you want to chat about The Prisoner or Peaks or anything else, really. Cool. Awesome.
5: Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having us on. Here I am in America for the very first time in 1983, on a mission to get an interview with Patrick McGowan about his groundbreaking television series, The Prisoner. A dream because the series had changed my life back in 1968 when it was first shown in Britain. A dream because you almost never get to meet your heroes. A dream. Because an infant Channel 4 television in London had commissioned a documentary about its making. A dream because I knew nothing about
0: making television programs. With the help of a director, this would be my first. So we're here with Chris Rodley, known for his book Lynch on Lynch, and he produced and directed over 30 documentaries, one of which is, in my mind, the Prisoner documentary that came out for the 50th anniversary. Hi, Chris. Hi, how you doing? Great. You know, this In My Mind documentary is such a gift to the prisoner community. It is really something special. I'm I'm so impressed with it. I rented it, and then right after I rented it, I said, boy, this is so good. I have to own it. So then I bought it right after renting it. It's such a great uh, documentary. So, you know, Brian has never seen The Prisoner. Could you explain, like, for someone who hadn't seen it before, um, yeah, what is it all about? What is this TV show?
1: Well, uh, I've been thinking about this. Is I can describe it and I can explain it. But unfortunately, describing it doesn't explain it. and um, Explaining it doesn't describe it. Um, I mean, it's, it's an odd thing. Uh, I mean, it, it starts off, it's, there's a guy, we assume he's a spy, because the actor Patrick McGowan had become famous, very famous in Britain, by playing a guy called John Drake in what we call Danger Man, and I think the Americans called... Secret agent. Yeah. Um, so we assume he's a spy in an opening montage, which means that they don't ever have to really explain anything. Um, in a kind of very, very beautiful economic sequence, he, he seems to be pissed about something. Mm-hmm. He has a resignation letter, storms out, um, is about to leave the country when this is all kind of silent, like a silent movie in a way. Um, and he's, he's sort of kidnapped by a couple of undertakers in a hearse which is already should alert you that something's not quite right. And he picks up in a kind of strange place, which is like a, it's like a holiday, it's like a holiday resort, but actually it's like a prison camp. So yeah. it has a kind of veneer of loveliness and an under, underbelly of pure horribleness. And um, he doesn't know who's running the place. And they, all they want to know is why did why did you resign your job? He won't tell them. Um, and for 17 weeks, um, they try and find out why he resigned. He continues to resist them. Mm-hmm. He, everyone in this village has a number. He's number six. He, he's interrogated constantly by number two, who kind of, kind of rotate. Um, and he wants to know who number one is. So actually the kind of thing on the series, it's a bit like Laura Palmer. I mean, who killed Laura Palmer? That's the, one of the things that keeps going on. Who is number yeah. one? Right at the end, we find out completely, uh, inexplicably, in one sense, that number one is him. He's the bad guy. It's the bad part of himself, we think, because you only get like 48 frames of a glimpse of him. He's also the bad guy. He kind of runs away from the village. There's a sign which says London 27 miles. I can assure you there's no coastline 27 miles away from (laughs) London. He goes home, and it's quite clear from the sound effects and just the feel of it that actually he hasn't escaped anything. He's a kind of prisoner of himself, and a prison of everything around him, and it suddenly he's tipped into something else. So that's the kind of description. It's something that literally fell apart before your eyes. I mean, it literally disintegrated. Yeah. and uh, um, uh, And it's a kind of... You know, it's a horrible kind of um, thing at first and everyone sort of hated that because it was supposed to be one thing and it became another. To explain it is, is a, a bit difficult, but you could really see it very clearly in terms of Patrick McGoo and it's really all to do with him. Here's a guy, he's the second, he's the most popular guy on television, the highest paid, more than Roger Moore as The Saint. Um, and uh, he's, got, he's got a guy who loves him, Lord Grade or Lee Grade, who pays for everything um who says uh, and he says to lord great i don't want to do this anymore i'm bored and lord mm-hmm. great says well what do you want to do he says, i want to do this and he's got a crazy idea it's only really supposed to be seven episodes it's a kind of serial not a series and it's it's a kind of a mind piece mm-hmm. um and he hasn't got anything in how to finish it but he's got a kind of basic thing but he's got he wields so much power and he's just his the money is there and his real great loves him so much it's just go it's not on the handshake it's very expensive actually
2: yeah so
1: he goes off you finds it. he's found this place already Mary, an extraordinary kind of place in north wales it was the dream of coughlin and ellis uh, who was a kind of low rent william randolph hearst i mean he he kind of you know put built this thing out of bits and pieces that he nicked from around the world similar a thing except he was a bit of a Tough, uh, but of a posh guy instead of a low life kind of yellow press guy like myself. anyway, so he's found the location. He, so he's, but he's got a problem. He's he knows that he wants to do something very very significant and serious because he believes in television. And actually, not many people believe in television. Mm. I don't think in those days. Television was his palette. It was his vision, and it was his kind of destiny. So he thinks television is a very powerful thing. I want to say something that's worth saying. I've got a message. I mean, I've got a big message. Um, And so he starts off and it's a kind of, he takes an entire team of people with him from Danger Man. He needs them. He's got a brilliant team. The best uh, production uh, designers. He's got probably the best ever in the entire world. First AD in, in David Tomlin. There's never been any better. He's made most of the American movies that you've seen and a lot of ours as well. extraordinary guy. He's got just a brilliant team he he moves them into this idea he gets writers but the problem is you know that there's a basic problem there and that his singular vision and it was absolutely singular when you come to it you've got to use you've got to use other people to help you and i think it started off with one thing and became another because he needed those people he needed those writers and he needed everyone uh, to help him do it but in the end he had a very clear idea and, and Other people had a different idea by then. And so it sort of fractured. And there was a rush to the ending. Uh, I think, as you probably know, he wanted to do seven episodes. Lord Grade couldn't sell seven episodes anywhere. So he could sell 13, I think, to the Americans um, and to us. And then when that didn't quite work out, I think the Americans agreed, CBS, whoever it was, agreed to do another four, make it 17 and call it a day. Um, and so there was a rush to kind of finish it all off. Um, so it, it's weird because it sort of started off as something very unique. Um, had to do it under a kind of spy, espionage, British c- serial uh, kind of guise. And when it came, but the thing, what that actually happened, I believe, is it became what it always was meant to be, um, a kind of allegory. It was never, what else was he going to do? He was famous for being John Drake's secret agent, you know, so that was his, that was his, that that was the guy, the cloak under which he could get into that thing. But really, because Pat is such a crazy guy, and because he's a very, very strict uh, Roman Catholic, and had a very strict Roman Catholic upbringing, and education, and had a kind of evangelical, you know, he wanted to change the world, actually, I think, he wanted to say something. So it got all snarled up in what telly normally has to do. So... It, it, that's what was so great about it. You could tell while you were seeing it, it was not like anything else because it was kind of tortured um, Frankenstein experiment. I wrote to him when it finished. I was 13. I, mm. I wrote to him because I was so appalled. I, I'd given 17 hours of my life to this thing every Sunday, not doing my homework for school on Monday. I wrote to him saying, you know, like, what, uh, what was that? And I just a letter back. I think a lot of people got a letter back. It was a kind of agreed letter, because you'd already bunged, you know, you, run from, you know, fled the country, because people were upset. 17 million people watched that final one. I got a letter with a kind of, it was a printed signature, <laughs> and a booklet, which, which was called The Plain Man's Guide to the Prisoner. So I kind of felt that was all right. Uh, when I read a lot of it, I thought, oh, I, think I, I think I got that anyway. <laughs> it like people, you know, you know, like Dominic Twin Peaks, you have a suspicion. And then you think, oh, I was right anyway. Why did I not believe my own intuition? It have been the beginning of water-cooler moments or something, whatever they horribly call those things.
0: Yeah. Um, so 50 years ago, you think, got, actually got to see it. 50 years ago, you were watching this. What was it about the show that you enjoyed so much as a kid? I, were you 13, 15, something like that? Like, what was it about the show then that you loved so much? I
1: think uh, it was everything, really. I mean, weirdly, it was shot in color, but we saw it in black and white. When you see it in color now, it's gobsmacking. Um, to think we had to watch it in black and white because Mm. although it was shot in colour because they were being smart about the future, it went out in black and white. Rather poor quality, actually. Um, But everything about it it was visually fantastic. It was incredibly unusual. It was also a mix of genres. It was like spy. But it was also, it felt like there was some science fiction in there and some psychological drama. And also, really importantly, actually, it was hip. And Mm. I mean, I was 15 at the time, but you could feel that it was... Hip. At that time of my life and lots of people's lives like my age, you we were only. Into, I was only interested in two things: television and music. Mm-hmm. And, and Sergeant Pepper had come out four months before, so the world was kind of different. Freak out by the Mothers Invention had come out pretty much the same time. That was you know, there was a track on that called "Who Are the Brain Police." That was pretty, you know. Um, the new Pink Floyd album, first Pink Floyd album, the first Doors album, the Velvets. So in music, pretty much every time you switched on the radio, or put, bought a record, there was a different sound. Yeah. Every, you know, whether it, whether it was a backward guitar Katasa by Jimi Hendrix, or Ray Mandarek switching his organ off and then back on again, and hello, I love you, whatever, you know, whatever, a different sound. And so it seemed that it was hip. And actually, secret agents weren't hip. They were terrible, boring. They weren't hip, because of course they worked for the FBI or the CIA or, or MI6. You know, they were boring. James mm. Bond, however hip, He was really not hip. He was a guy who wore tweeds and jodhpurs and ties and shirts and and who in Goldfinger in 1964 said, you know, to the girl who got painted in gold just before she got painted in gold and died, you know, oh, my dear girl, do you not know that drinking Dom Perignon 1953 above four degrees centigrade is just not done? It's like, (laughs) it's just like listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. You know, it's like, what? <laughs> I mean, these are not hip guys. They're not hip guys. The hip guys, actually, you know, had a few because you had Ilya Kiriakil and, and Napoleon Solo, who, you know, the men from Uncle, but then who was Uncle? That wasn't exactly a, a, the FBI, you know, so they were like freelancers. So, uh, it, uh, you know, it felt to me like what the prisoner did was he was a guy who he had been the government guy, but he'd had enough. And actually, we'd all had enough. I mean, we'd had enough too. It felt like people were telling us about how long to grow out, not to go out hair, not want to wear this or do that or read this or do that. And the, the clever thing about the series was that he was, because he didn't trust anyone, he didn't know who was running the village. He was against everybody. He was against all authority, which is exactly what we were. We were like, yeah. so he, this is a good guy. He's hip, he knows. He can't trust anyone because we can't. Who shot JFK? We don't know, yeah. you know what's going on. So it seemed to me quite clever. So I think it was everything. Also, I won't go on too much. for finding that is, even though I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm married to Twin Peaks. There's never been a first episode of anything as good as Arrival. It's mm-hmm. the most unbelievably brilliantly set up first episode of anything. It's got everything. It's it's, it's all the fantastic location work, the brilliant kind of sex which was done at MGM while Kubrick was doing um, 2001. It's got a big vision and it's got a such a perfect piece of um, writing and filming actually um, so it was just captivating from the get go no you, know, you were on board immediately, immediately. Yeah. You know, so
0: years later you wrote about the prisoner for such magazines as prime time in 1982 and in degree absolute the production des- destruction and afterlife of the prisoner you tell the history of the prisoner with great details yeah. and even included an episode guide do you think it's it's articles like this that got you the prisoner uh, documentary uh, um, at Channel Four.
1: Uh, no, I got the job. Um, yeah. First of all, you making a lot of really bad errors in that uh, in the early writings. I didn't, you know, I was of the belief that you could watch something and you could kind of work out, you could work it out just by watching it. I didn't really know a lot, yeah. so I think I were some serious errors and I came to some serious, <laughs> um, seriously wrong conclusions based on bad info. Um, but no, it was, I got the job, because it's 1983, and I, Channel 4 had just started the year before, and I I see, I saw that they had bought the series and they were going to run it, and um, I just thought, Christ, you know, if they're going to run it, I'd really love to make a, a documentary about it, but I I don't know how to do that. But, and I was in Paris at the time. I was in, I was running an independent cinema in London, and um, I, had to, I had to go to Paris to meet Peter Brook to try and buy a movie off him, because they had distribution as well. I didn't get it, um, and I wrote a thing in a bar called La Palette, I remember it so clearly, um, in Rue Saint-Germain. I wrote what I guess is a treatment for a documentary, and I sent it to Channel 4, and because they, Channel 4 didn't know what they were doing in those days, brilliant, I got a call within a couple of days saying, come in, and I went in, and they said, we're going to make it, but you don't know anything about television and how to do it, do you? And I said, no, and they said, well, don't worry, because, you know, it's not it's not, it's not not rocket science, we'll stitch you mm-hmm. with the director, and I producer. And within, you know, like 10 days, I was in LA. So um, it was a long shot, but in those days, you could do that. I mean, you could never, ever, ever, ever do that. There was never a moment in television when you could have done that, actually, except at Channel 4, because Channel 4 had a weird remit. When they started, they were given a remit, which said they had to produce innovative television and get 10% of the audience share. But those don't go together. Um, Mm -hmm. They've got about 4%, because if you do one, you don't get the other. Um, but they were willing to take on someone who knew absolutely nothing, but had the kind of knowledge. Um, so that was their risk, and uh, I think we all live to regret it. <laughs> oh, <but> you, you <laughs> no, really, truly. <yeah>. Really. <laughs>
0: How did you convince Patrick uh, McGowan to even get involved with the project? Like, here's somebody who's he's not really known for doing a lot of interviews, and you, you weren't yeah. as well-known, and yet you convinced him to be a part of the project.
1: Yeah, I, I, you know it's really annoying. Uh, uh, um, I don't. I wrote him a begging letter, and you, you know, in those days, you had to write a letter. Well, uh, you didn't even think you're faxes. Um, this is like 1983, mid 83 I wrote him a begging letter. I think it was two pages long. I remember that very clearly, and I sent it to his home in Pacific Palisades. I don't know how I got the address. Someone, you know, anyway. I wrote him a begging, letter and you had to wait for someone to write back. Um, or to call you and um, he called and said that he was he would do it I, I don't know why uh, it must have been a hell of a letter I wish I had a copy of no, it no. I, I mean I, I really wish I'd kept it. so stupid but you know you've had to put a carbon copy you know it's literally it's, anyway it's primitive yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know why I think I, I can only guess now I think what he may have gone for is I promised him promised him for the bottom of my heart that I would not take any of the mystery out of it, any of the magic out of it, or say this equals that, this means that, and I, we would we would maintain the mystery, absolutely as much as we could, it was going to be a teasing thing. Um I, that maybe that's maybe why he went for I I don't know. I think maybe he he regretted it later because it was such a you know torment actually making the thing. Um And I felt sorry for him, and I think he felt sorry for me, actually, I felt a bit as it was happening. I think also he wanted to do it because, you know, he had this messianic complex, uh, and he went in a caring way, um, about he thought everyone in Britain hated him because he'd let them down over this thing. This was this big thing, and everyone watched it, no one understood it, Um, and that they would, he used the phrase, actually, they all crucify me. Um, So he went to America, he never came back. and I think he wanted to um sort of confess uh, that's his Roman Catholic side and also speak to the British public so they didn't hate him so much. Of course the British public loved him. He's completely wrong.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, they adored him, they would have forgiven him anything. But he thought they he thought they, they didn't like what he'd done Uh, And uh, I think he saw that this documentary is an opportunity to kind of clear the air a bit. As the documentary I didn't know that he'd already done an interview for um, Canadian television, but that's not the same thing. That was an educational channel in in Toronto, Mm. um, because a university in Toronto, amazingly, was teaching, had the prison on the syllabus, for Christ's sake. So he'd spoken to the Canadians, um, but that wasn't the same. So I think he thought, I've got something to get off my chest. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't. I never ask him why do you do it. I so, don't. him anyway. I mean, he's scary. He's
0: scary, isn't he? Yeah, and like, and, and he, here's a hero of yours. I mean, he was a hero, and you got the chance to interview him. And what was like your first impressions of him? I mean, like, w- look, watching the In My Mind documentary, he seems almost as intense as Number Six, and he seems maybe a little mischievous, and sometimes. Of yeah. course, And he was a little frustrated with the project, but it was. i was just curious. What was, do you remember? Your impressions of him.
1: Yeah, I I, I don't know what the the language barriers may be here, but I'll say he's fucking frightening. Um, (laughs) We we met him um, at the top of the Huntley Hotel, the bar at the top of the Huntley Hotel, um, and it was frightening. Right from the get-go, it was frightening. He came in, um, he started reading us the kind of riot act about who we could interview, who we were not allowed to interview. All, all these conditions, matter conditions. We must not interview under any circumstances George Markstein, who was the script editor and who had a falling out, a serious falling out with, because Markstein, mm. since think it was all his idea. You know, there was a, a lot of bad, bad blood there. Um, and unfortunately, I couldn't, we couldn't agree to any of these things because we were just making, we were just making for telly. We couldn't agree to conditions. I mean, no television company will allow that. They yeah. won't. They like to be independent. So so he was really frightening. He was like 1,000% right on it. And very, very, you know, seemed to me to be uh, angry, permanently angry, so the least. Very troubled, very tortured. Um, I mean, very, very very early on, he said to me, Chris, don't you think that when you you get married, you should be a virgin? Um, And so that was an early question, and I'd already fallen, you know, I'd already fallen, failed that test obviously um and i knew that this was it was very very serious all the stuff I and mean, he wanted to um he had very high standards and uh very very high standards morally and mm-hmm. artistically so if you didn't if you didn't it, uh, it would be quite hard to meet those standards and i think the people who he, who followed him loved him because of that it's like one of your own guys sam peckinpah you know i did a film about sam peckinpah once Sam's a monster. Um, weirdly, the same people kept going back and back and back.
2: Hmm.
1: I mean, I've seen grown men. I interviewed a guy called Gordy Dawson, who's Sam Peck and um, first day he do. Anyway, he's worked with Sam a lot. He's a grown man with a bar in his house, you know, one of those guys. <laughs> and um, he cried. I mean, he literally cried when he was talking about Sam. It was so horrible. Yeah. But you'd have to say, What? You did seven movies with Gordy? <laughs> <What's> he- <laughs> Okay, I understand you don't like gutting donkeys so you can get some vulture to kind of come over. I understand why, you know, you don't like packing chickens in the sand up to their heads so that you can shoot their heads off. And then, because the weight of the sand and the heat of the sand, the chickens fall asleep. So you have to go and squirt lighter fluid in their face <laughs> in order to get the shot. um But why did you go back, man? I mean, you know, so I think what? Patrick, you know, was a, he expected a lot from you, but I think everyone knew it was worth it and i knew it would be worth it but i didn't know what i was doing yeah and i had a director who abdicated within about three minutes because once the going got tough he just sort of surrendered a crew who were now seems to me inept Mm -hmm. um and so i could just see my baby crumbling and i could just see the thing crumbling before my eyes so it was it was at once glorious to meet him and have that but also it was really horrible watching, looking as if something was going to fall. It is literally falling apart before your eyes and will we have anything, will we be able to make even make a film out of it? So it's pretty terrifying if you've never done one before.
0: Yeah, and you, so you go through this, and you 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 shoot all of the stuff you need for your documentary, and then you get you get Patrick McGowan creates his own documentary and sends it to you. What were you thinking? Yes. What was your reaction? It was like, wait a minute! I was making a documentary, and all of a sudden, he's he's basically making his own documentary and wants you to use it on Channel Four. I mean, yeah, I
1: I you know that was a glorious moment. I mean, he, he only did that because he saw Al Ruffin and he hated it so much. You know, I mean, he screamed at us for 18 hours across Paris with the veins standing out on the side of his neck.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, we, got, we, had, we got moved on from several cafes. We ended up somewhere on the Champs-Élysées I think to remember at 4 a.m. in the morning. and He's still screaming at us and it's been going on all day, um, all day. And then uh, we went, went back to the hotel and he sort of asked me, he said, what's your room number? And I, I gave him my room number. I thought he was gonna come up and get me. And oh, I, no. I, sat on the, I sat on the bed waiting for him to come up and punch me. He didn't actually. Anyway, so he then he sent his own documentary. So I was really excited about this because he used our cameraman, same cameraman and he went to all the same places. So it was <laughs> a kind of nod to the fact that we had some of what we were doing was right. So I was very excited about it. I mean, I thought the interview was poor because it was one of his assist- daughters had done it. Um, not Catherine. Uh, it wasn't Catherine. One of his daughters had done it. So it was a setup, um, and it didn't reveal very much. But the it went' kind of really mad at the end it was like the end of the prisoner itself and I really loved all the mad stuff it was just fantastic <laughs> um so I was very excited and actually you know uh, I'm a nerd i'm, an, I'm not I mean i'm a, i'm I'm a fan so to get something that Patrick McGuin has directed arrive with your name on it you know um I just thought how lucky am I i mean this is exciting i mean it was it was stupid but i i I loved it just because he had done it um, and I thought, well, he's just having a laugh Come with us and that's fine. You know, we deserve it. And um, I really wanted to use it, some at least some of it. But at that point, he had, I, I never got a, what I guess in this country, called a release form from him. Uh-huh. He never signed off on the interview, our interview. So Channel 4, uh, Channel, Channel 4 had to freeze the production because he hadn't, he hadn't he made it quite clear he hadn't signed off on it. And he hadn't, my book. Um, so they for the production, and uh, we were kind of in a state of nothing happening. Well, and so they said to us in no uncertain terms, "You cannot use frame of that because that would put us in a very difficult position legally. If we show any of this footage, you've got us. Then you've got to actually ignore it, pretend you've never seen it, which yeah. is really painful." But that's it. We couldn't use it because um, we were in trouble. You know, we were in serious trouble at that point.
0: Would you, were you able to use it? I mean, I, I watching in my mind documentary. Did you you actually were able to take some of that uh, his work and share it in, in that film?
1: Yeah, I mean the problem is I mean not horrible. I hate I hate um, there's so many the things I hate. Actually, but one thing I really hate a kind of archive. Somewhere there is a really good tape of that film, and Catherine doesn't have it. She's seen it, but she didn't have it. She's given it her blessing. Uh, sort of. Well, what else are you going to do but uh, it has, it's vanished so all we've got is this really 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 bad sort of third generation from a VHS shot off a television transfer to DVD thing which mm. is almost unwatchable um, it really annoys me I've had people searching for it and other people have had people searching for that tape I don't know where it's gone the production company don't seem to have it the, the archive don't have it it's a, it's a crime and it would be a real that would, be, that would have been if nothing else a fantastic from um, DVD extra, you know, his the his, his path to our film.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> but and so what was but it's not to be, I don't know where it's gone. I mean, it, it's, it's, I should have just walked away with that. I should, should have taken it. <laughs> How many times you've done that and you're like thinking, why don't I just walk out of the office with that? <laughs> no one else cares about that. Right. I mean, I keep doing it though, I haven't learned. You know, I should just walk away with that. No, yeah. but no one gives a shit. Right, um, and it would be nice to have it. Six into
0: one uh, aired in uh, 1983. What was the reception yes. of the documentary?
1: I think it did really well. Um, it got really good reviews. And in my when I'm when I'm feeling really low, and I think let's just I will look myself up on IMDb. If mm-hmm. <laughs> so I can get out of bed in the morning, it's the one. It's the one film I was involved in. It's got the biggest vote. It's just really crazy. Yeah. Um, uh But no, it did really well. But It did really well because in those days you weren't allowed to do a traditional documentary. Channel 4 wouldn't allow it, so you could have no voiceover, you could have no um, presenter. You know, the crazier it was, the better. So the context of it, uh, it was supposed to be, the only reason it would have gotten made was to be really pretty out there. And it was pretty out there, and I think a lot of the prisoner community didn't like it because we got Patrick McGowan, and why would Mm -hmm. you bother doing anything else if you've got Patrick, we just go and talk for an hour. You know, yeah. Forget everything else. <laughs> and um, but we were like, oh no, 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 we're gonna, we're, you know, we're gonna be formally innovative and we're gonna do unusual stuff. And and they were heady times, you know, like um, you just wanted to make your mark aesthetically. And uh, that's stupid. Actually, we, just, we should have just won the interview. If it had been good enough, I might have, you know, tempt, been tempted by that. But as you know, we had to do it several times. <laughs> and it was a sort of torture. Right. So I didn't feel it would have run. It would have run uncut so i think the prisoner community was kind of disappointed in a way because pat was there but he didn't get to say much but other than that it did really well luckily it's been purchased now by a network who did the new movie um the new documentary and they buried it in granite which i'm very happy about so it will never be seen Uh. ah I've seen some embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I've seen a little bit of it, and I think some of the things were really creative. There was one part where you interviewed somebody, but he was like he was almost interviewing himself. There was like two; it was like double
1: of oh, the same yeah, person. That was, yeah. I mean, that's the kind of shit, right? I mean, <laughs> Patch accent who, who, who directed Schizoid Man, which yeah. had two Patrick and You know, so it's all right, why don't we just have two Patch accents? I mean, it's kind of obvious, and it's kind of naive and nice and silly. It's all right. It's I no it. on interpretation, I think. It's got some nice things about it, but I think it's too interested in itself, and it's not, not interested enough in the people in front of the camera. Yeah. Um, I mean, Lewis Greenfield, I think, was really good, and we reprieved some of that stuff in the new documentary. And Lord Grey, that was a tough... That was almost as difficult getting an interview as long as it was with that. We only got it because Patrick McGillian called him up to talk to these guys. Nice.
0: Um,
1: so that's where, and I'm quite proud of that, because even though he doesn't have a lot to say... He's just like an adoring dad, really. you know, puffing away on his cigar. Yeah. Saying how much he loves Patrick. He would have done anything. Believe me, he would have done anything. Yeah. Literally. You know, even though Patrick I trashed his office, I think, at one point. Um, I think when Grey didn't give him the money he wanted for something else, jumped on his desk and literally kicked the shit out of the entire office I and mean, was very unkind. You know. hmm. um, which is not nice, because Lee was his, you know, couldn't have done anything without Lou. Just couldn't. You know, yeah. we all need someone like Lou to give us the money and give us the freedom. And,
0: Definitely.
1: And you barely get that. You mostly don't, actually. In fact, it did. Hmm. Nice. So in
0: my mind, you know, you, the, the prisoner community should be very happy. You get a lot of Patrick McGoo in, in this in this uh, <laughs> film. And, you know, he talks about, um, he mentions about how the prisoner was in kind of, he mentioned how most of the prisoner was really in his mind. And is that where yes. the t- title comes from? Or is are you talking yeah, about your I mean, own? Yeah,
1: um title, I liked the title. It wasn't mine, actually. Um, when Network approached, they approached me to do it. Um, and they already, they said, well, we want to call it In My Mind, which mm-hmm. is good because as you say, it was something that had been in Patrick's mind for years. Um, and because he's more interested in, in the mind aspect of the series, he's not really that interested in the action. I mean, I think, he, you know, there's some perfunctory bits of action in the prison. It's not a lot. It's all right, just driving along some sand dunes in a mini-moke. A um, few punch-ups, nothing much. Uh, he's Because he really, it was a mind thing for him. So mm-hmm. I thought it was a good title. And also because in the best episode, Once Upon a Time, he does actually say the number two, you know, in my mind, you're the smart one, you know. <laughs> so that, that mind thing, I mean, in someone's mind, was something that came up a lot. So it was a good title, and, you know, I was lucky in a way that they are, I mean, I was approached, I had, I've repressed this thing for 35 years, like, you do a bad work, or like a shitty relationship, or something like wrong, um, And they came to me and said, well, it's the 50th anniversary, and, um, you know, do you think you could, uh you know, revisit that footage and I lied and I said yeah sure <laughs> I mean I didn't really think this was possible I said "Yes, yeah, sure of course I can yeah you're on and, and, and that was a lie um, I thought some point I'll would, be, I would jump and they sent me the footage and, they, and I watched it It was painful painful looking at that, those rushes um, so they said acquired from the original production company and they said well do you think and I went yeah sure and I was lying I just hmm. kept lying and lying yes I could do it I could do it I know I can do it even when we went back to Port and to do the drone shots, you know, I, I wasn't convinced. I was just going along thinking, when do I confess the fact that I don't think I can do this or that anything can be done? Um, but luckily, you know, weirdly, it sounds a bit lynching, but weirdly, I think he talks about elephant man in this, respect. you wake up one morning, I, mean, I think it's when he went to a hospital in Whitechapel and he's just got the, I think he describes the wind as normal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, woke up one morning and I could see a way through uh, but that was quite late in the process I was bluffing I was bluffing I thought it's painful to look at I don't want to be here Uh, why was I such a dick why did I mess it all up Mm. Um, but then you 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 know you get it you suddenly see a way through thank God or if you don't you're in real trouble and then it was kind of easy and then it was really pleasurable I mean I, I really enjoyed it and I thought actually how often in your life do you get You know, someone came to you and said you know that girlfriend or boyfriend you had thirty five years ago you screwed it up, you know. Yeah. How about you could know, have another shot at that, what do you think? God, yeah, why couldn't you so that thing I said that day I could take that bag and I could take it to Venice instead of to you know, some shitty whole place. Um, you know, you don't often get the chance to revisit your past and make it make amends, you know, and I thought, yeah. oh, okay, this is really good. Um, and although I am absolutely convinced. That Patrick McGill would have hated new films as much as he hated the previous one. <laughs> I mean, I, I would rely on that. I'd, I, I hope he would not disappoint me. He'd still think it was shit. Oh. I, you know, it's um, it was it's not. So I'm i I'm, I'm you know, that's but I knew that, I knew he was right about the first one. I know he'd be wrong about the second one. As long as you know what it is, it's fine. But yeah, um, it, it was a rare opportunity. I'm so pleased they asked me, and um, um, that I managed to hide my. Um, my, my lack of faith until the last minute when suddenly it sort of looked on good Yeah, basically, basically it's really good it's so good you know so I mean you had the
0: experience then you had all those years to, to to you know get to the point where you could make a, this great documentary if you could what would you? What advice would you give your younger self about making a documentary
1: well okay, I didn't I didn't know anything so any advice would have been useful I mean for anyone who might even listen to this who's thinking that, there are some things um the, I think t- some of them Patrick taught me and I've never ever forgotten them. Uh, during that first interview he screamed at me and, I must have been reading my next question <laughs> and he just exploded and said don't do that You know, I don't want to look up and see you looking down mm-hmm. at your next question. I need to you to look me in the eye, and I need you to listen to me. And um I need I, this is a performance, and I'm going to perform, and you're the audience. So don't look at your fucking questions. I mean, you yeah. can't you know. <laughs> um, so that way, I have never ever done that in 35 years. I've never ever ever looked. You know, I mean, you have to work out a way of how you know, either memorize them or keep them, you know, keep them on idiot cards, but you know, don't. If you're interviewing someone, do them the the courtesy of looking them in the, you know looking at them and listen to them. And yeah. That's the one thing I never knew that, and I felt a painful lesson. Well, not painful; it was a good lesson. I've never, never ever forgotten it, and I've never I've always behaved since then. Also, don't be frightened. You know, I'm, if I'm looking at a bad shot in a in a video assist, don't just because you think you don't know anything, you, you, you can say, "Excuse me, I don't think that's right." Mm. I was. Um, nervous i thought cameramen knew how to film things and some people knew how to record things and directors knew how to direct I right at the time said that is that looks shit you know <laughs> what's going on can we not do that better i never did because i was intimidated, and also they were american and you know i was a huge fan of american cinema and everything american yeah. um part of the politics and then um uh, so i think that i wish i had had the confidence so I don't know anything, but I can I know more than you, actually?
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, I, four, or five, four or five years later, I made a film about the German directors and vendors. Uh, I was still producing. I wasn't directing. And the, we, drove into, we drove into the Mojave Desert to get some shots, Paris, Texas-type thingies. And we lost the director on the way, and I got to stand the camera. And, you know, the light was going. We were in the desert. And I thought well, I'm actually going to have to direct this because there's no director. But I won't, because I'm very respectful. So I let the cameraman set up the shot, and I went not look through the viewfinder. It was crap. I mean, it was the shittiest shot I've ever seen. So i just say, well, well, can't we just put the camera in Put it over there. <laughs> At least, you know, there's a diner in the corner. You know what I mean? So you've got to be have the confidence to think, even if you think you don't know anything, if you've got half an eye, and don't don't be intimidated by technicians who tend to try and mystify everything. Yeah. Of course they do. It's a good job, you know. That's good advice. Unfortunately, there's no mystery about directing. I can't, I can't make that sound mysterious. Right. You know, you just turn up and tell people what to do and go home. There's nothing really it's find too mysterious about that sex the hands a day at once but yeah, being that's
0: another thing yeah you know, that's good advice it's real good advice you know I also want to comment that you know in some of your documentaries you're the narrator and I think that really you really sell your documentaries I really love your voice <laughs> I love the way you you kind of go into the story and stuff and I think that's really special I know I, I got to check out a few of your documentaries, like, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're the narrator again, and it's it's a wonderful thing.
1: I have to say, like most things, um, that only began as a, as a kind of economic necessity. I did a feature-length song called The Joy of Easy Listening, which is about easy listening music, um, which is a kind of polemic, like you thought the stuff was rubbish, but actually it's really, really interesting. Mm. Um, and I had an actor in mind who I wanted, I'd never done voice to film before, and I had an actor in mind who I wanted to do, Anthony Edge, who was in Buffy's Vampire Slayer. British guy, he just came up. He just had a very seductive, um, deep, lovely voice. And uh, he was in a coffee advert, he was the kind of, you know, where he started. I couldn't, he wanted too much money, and I didn't have the budget, so. And then I couldn't find anybody. Um, and then my executive producer said, well, why don't you do it? You know, you've, you've written a script, you do it. And I, I didn't really want to do it. But then um, I have to say since then, I've done it a few times and um, I, I've grown to kind of appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you get someone who's really didn't they, they sort of they screw it up. Uh, they're, they're not, you know, you think, why didn't I read it myself? I'm... I'm I, I think I know how that's supposed to be done. Yeah. So not all the time, but sometimes. There was right. no choice on, on in my mind that had to be because that was just... Uh Horrible first it was a personal yeah, was story good.
0: too. It was it was your story. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the documentaries I saw that, that you did, I I liked too. What, what are these small records? What are they called? I mean, like the small forty-five. No, it's it's a single. Is it oh, just
1: it's single? It's a single. Forty-five. Yeah, yeah.
0: So I, mean, uh, Chris did a documentary on that, and it was so cool. I ah. I, think, I, mean, I think back in the day, I had a single, probably like the Grace American Hero or something like that TV <laughs> show. But it's like, oh, what a fascinating documentary, and and you and you were telling the story and. And I just liked that, really. It was it really was something.
1: See, that's really, actually, just saying, as was reminded of it, absolutely, proved, I wasn't interested in anything other than television and music. The very first 45 I actually bought was a theme song for a TV show. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was very young, and it was from a TV show called The Human Jungle, ah. which was about a psychoanalyst of all things, played by Herbert Long, and it was in sh- shot in black and white on British television. I think maybe John Barry had written it, hopefully, genius someone like John, someone that good. It was, you know, I used to buy TV things because, um, you know, in the day when, you know, way back then, you know, no, no VCRs, no, you know, you had to have a reel-to-reel tape recorder. It was so primitive. Yeah. I um, capture something that you had enjoyed and replay it. You couldn't do it. Um, you just couldn't do it. Things didn't get repeated. Hmm. So, I, I recorded whole shows on reel-to-reel tape recorders just to listen so wow. at least I had the um, and there was a when 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 your guys landed on the moon, um, you know, in this event Over here, they had a show, and Pink Floyd did a kind of quite smart, actually, smart piece of programming. They got Pink Floyd into the studio to play to, to play a soundtrack live to this event. Godsmacking to think that happened, of course, the BBC thing, absolute a a, a absolute. Top of the list assholes have wiped that tape. Um, they wipe a lot of their television all the time. Um, so they wipe that show. But I've got a recording of Real to reel of Pink Floyd in the studio. So at least I've got the audio of
0: it. That's awesome.
1: Off a mic in my living room with people making tea and shit but, you know, in the background. But. Um, you had to do that, just record Dr. I love it. Terry. That's awesome. That's <laughs> so fantastic cool. Fantastic performance. Rick Wright, God bless him, you know, God bless his soul, the organist. It was mostly him on sort of on vibraphones. Absolutely dreamy and beautiful. Fantastic. music. Yeah. amazing. That's so fantastic. cool. In my mind,
0: uh, you got to interview uh, McGowan's daughter, Catherine, for, uh, for the documentary. And uh, was there anything new you discovered about Patrick McGowan and the prisoner through talking
1: with her? Um this is funny because I didn't interview her um, mm. um network <laughs> ah. um, network said we've, we don't really have the money kit we've got to go out there anyway because we've got to do lots of business um well, we should take it with us to interview Catherine, but um we're gonna do it so i I gave them I gave them all the questions um, I felt a bit missed I didn't get to go um so I gave him the question because I could Tim Bedos who runs his network. He actually did the interview with her. Um, which is very good. Um, I would say that's good. Um, so I didn't until he got back I mean I gave him I, I gave him my camera and everything. Um, I mean I told you know, set it all up pretty much. Um, so I didn't learn I didn't see that until he came back. So it was interesting to me. It was interesting the more I looked at it, where she was very tactful, the point at which she was very tactful, and, and you know, as you would expect a daughter to be as a father, who can't have been an interesting thing, he got live with. Um, And where she teared up, I think, where you, mm-hmm. can, if you see something over and over on the kind of, uh, in the edit suite, where people start, to, you know, they're trying not to cry. And um, she tries not to cry most seriously when she's talking about him playing in band, and you can tell that that fearsome character is her father. And that, mm. uh, the more she talks about the performance, the more she gets, you know, gets to stop herself, and I'm um, getting too upset. So that was. But the interesting thing, then I did meet her. Um, the, the, the documentary premiered on, on, uh, on September 29, up in Port Merion, um, and they made a 35mm print of it, and it was all very kind of lavish. Hmm. And she flew over. Um, so I, I basically shit myself that night. I, you know, I mean, she was uh, there. She hadn't seen it. She hadn't seen a frame of it. Wow. I wanted to show her some of it, but the um, network said, "No, no, 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 no. We can't do that because she we can't involve her in the process." You know, and I, he was right. But she hadn't seen anything. So there it is. It's kind of like it was like midnight. Um, no, it wasn't quite right. It was late. And uh, on the on evening of the 28th, um, the, the, the actual day of the 29th. And um, I was, you know, I just got drunk, and I thought I'd had loads of drugs I'd have taken a lot. Um, I didn't have any except but booze is all I had. And uh, she, um, I thought, well, what's she thinking? You know, what yeah. the hell's <laughs> going on in there? And, um, and she loved it. Uh-huh. And, but that was a bit... Um, that was a difficult. That was difficult because we just didn't know. And um, she, she—I think she loved it. She said she loved it. So, and I was—you know—it was just huge relief all around. Um, not that she could have effectively done anything, but it's nice to know. Um, and mm. uh, she agreed with me that her dad would almost certainly hate it as much as the other one, which was nice. <laughs> <laughs> but Yeah, he would have probably walked out. Yeah. What's up? Um, so, I, I, I mean, I, I've been in touch with the since. We sort of keep in touch, um, and whenever I do an event, I sort of say the only one with you. Know, so I'm, it's nice. I mean, I've 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 often kind of thought, you know, you get all these horrible rumours about they're going to do, going to be a movie version, first it's going to be Mel Gibson. That's right. We're going to do a movie version because I think maybe because of Braveheart and doing this so good in that I don't know and then I think the latest film is Ridley Scott which just filled me with horror yeah. um, that they'll do some movie I mean I've kind of I mean I've had when I saw her In Port Merriman I thought well that's the clue to me and I think what we have is we just it's you now. It's you. It's a woman. She wakes up in a place, maybe here, maybe not here, and she's kind of got this DNA in her. It's all DNA from this crazy guy. Mm. Um, I haven't quite worked it out my head, but I would love to do. I mean, she is an actor, and I think she's quite good actually. it. And it would be, um, it would be great to kind of a nice twist on where she sort of played a part that was a bit similar to that. Knowingly, yeah, something nice, like down the years, you know. And you know, we'll get to it. It's like you know, if if you know, if an actor says I'll see you in 25 years, and then you see them in 25 years, you can't help it. It's just you're you're there, right? I mean, it's just like yeah.
2: <laughs> right
1: that, that kind of resonance, and that kind of um, gar um, baggage, is, is it always pays off, never doesn't.
0: United States has not gotten the 50th anniversary of the the Blu-ray, and I was so disappointed. Part of the reason I was disappointed is I said, oh, I wasn't going to get to see your documentary, and I was so happy when I realized it was available by itself to rent and then yeah. buy, and so I'm so happy about that. I still want the 50th anniversary Blu-ray, and I'm hoping eventually it will come to the United States. Yeah, but, sure. I
1: mean, it's, um, I mean, I've never... I've made... I, mean, you know, I, can't, I don't even know how many documentaries, but... They've pretty much all exclusively been for television, so they've never had that afterlife. You know, they get shown, they might get repeated, but they're not, it's not like Lynch on Lynch or Cronenberg on Cronenberg. They're not, they then exist on a shelf. Yeah. You know, that's what's quite nice about it. It's something is physically in the world. It's not just in the airwaves and hmm. the TV channels decide they've got, you know, they've got a hole in the schedule and they're going to repeat it. You know, they won't to cost them any extra money. So it's nice, you know, it nice to do something that was, I don't think it'll ever be shown on television, actually. Apparently it's too niche, according to most TV channels. or all the TV channels. So it only whatever exists as, as a kind of DVD and some limited theatrical stuff. Yeah. But it's nice, though, for once.
0: Hey, thank you so much, Chris, for your time.
1: Pleasure. Great, great pleasure. Take care. Thank
3: you, Bex. Thank you, Eason. And a big thank you to Chris Rodley for being on today's show. Today was an amazing show.
0: It was really cool. It. it was. I mean, it was something a little different. We did. I. I really loved the Prisoner. I mean, I loved it from back in college. I. Mm-hmm. I found out about it through, through my love of Twin Peaks. I found out. Hey, here's another crazy show to watch <laughs> and stuff. So it's cool <laughs> that we got a show to kind of talk a little bit about the
3: shit. Twin. About the Prisoner. Yeah. So cool, and I will definitely watch the Prisoner. Ben, I, uh, you guys have... Peaked. You gotta
0: watch the first episode, and you gotta watch... I think it's really like two last episodes at least, and you get a good sense of the show. But there's only 17
3: episodes, so it's not that much yeah, to watch. Yeah, it's not much. So I will definitely check that out this summer. If you have a suggestion for a guest, a topic, or just want to say hi, send us an email at twin Peaks at TwinPeaksUnwrapped at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on the old Twitter. And... Feel free to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Leave us a nice little comment. Subscribe to us, or on YouTube. Subscribe, Google Play, Spotify, wherever your fine podcast can be found. We are there.
5: So Do we- the theme song. Do the theme song. <laughs> Wait, Ben, ready?
3: I'm edit. Secret, Secret agent, agent man.
2: You <laughs> singing, and you.